I'm Andrew McNulty. Welcome to the Rise podcast series. For the last 25 years, I've met the best guys and girls around the world in regard to resilience, well-being and leadership. I've been educated by them, coached by them, inspired by them, and certainly I've learned a huge amount by spending time with them. In this podcast series, you're going to get a download from those people. I hope you get educated. I hope you get motivated. I hope you get inspired. And yes, I hope you get activated to doing things differently in terms of your resilience, your well-being, and your leadership through adversity. Now more than ever, we as leaders in our own homes, in our own communities, in our teams, in our organizations, in our global companies, or in our small companies, we need to be more resilient. We need to become better leaders, and we need to rise higher. Our guest today is Nick Wilkeman. I've known Nick Wilkeman for now nearly six years. My favorite memory of spending time with Nick was around Chicago when Ireland beat the All Blacks in that famous rugby victory. Nick is the head of athletic performance and science at the RFU. He's formerly the director of training and systems and education at Exos, one of the greatest well-being companies in the world. Nick is an international speaker and expert in the areas of sports science, strength and conditioning, coaching, and of course, in the whole area of physical robustness. Nick is a master coach, and recently, he is the author of a famous book called The Language of Coaching. Nick is a proud father, a proud husband, and he's got an amazing passion for being a DJ. Nick Wilkeman, you're most welcome to the Rise podcast. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic, and, and I'm already rising based on that intro, so let's go. Nick, pro sport has been through phenomenal change in the last 12 months. You spent the last nearly 25 years working in pro sport. Talk us through the extent to that change and transformation in that industry. When we look at, at sport, Enda, we know that what is required of us day in, day out, whether or not we like it, is our ability to adapt. And we see that for the players on the field, as well as the staff and the coaches off of it. When, when COVID hit, we had to adapt at a level as a world, as a society, as communities, and as sport in a way that we've never had to, at least in my lifetime and experience. And I'll be honest, I have nothing but remarkably positive things to say about what I have observed in the community around me. Uh, within a matter of weeks, we had sports from uh, MLB, U.S. Olympics, right? Irish rugby, Aussie rules football, everybody coming together, jumping on calls saying, how are we going to solve this? How are we going to remotely not only support our players, but support our staff? Mental health and well-being was brought up from day one. And so two things I have observed, at least within the context of Irish rugby and the broader sport, have absolutely lifted my spirits. And I believe is one of the reasons why we continue to see rugby being played. And that is, first and foremost, collaboration. People have sought to get tighter when everything around us was falling down. And I can say our staff, our people have never been closer together. Some people I have not seen in over a year, Enda, 
but I would say our relationships are stronger than ever. And so collaboration and through that connection, and let's just put a final one in there, communication. This is what I have seen from my team, from our team in Irish rugby. And despite all of the, the negative, unavoidable energy that exists around us, there's been this piercing brightness and support laden by the fact that there's ups and downs. And we can now look at each other and say, how are you doing? And someone can say, I'm not having a great day. And I can say, well, you know what? I'm here for you. How can we help? And then you know what? It's reciprocated when the ball's in the other court. I have been utterly uplifted by the community that is Ireland, notably, and Irish rugby. I love the language in there, piercing brightness. I love the way you lace together a conversation about collaboration. You spoke very much about the quality of the communication, and you spoke at the start about adaptability. How much of that do you believe, Nick, is imperative in any walk of life as we go through this pandemic uh, towards its end state? We talk about change a lot. And a quote I once heard is, it's not that people don't like to change. It's that they don't like to be told to change. And I think what we've all realized is change has been imposed on us. And if we try to resist, if we try to fight the change that is currently being imposed on us, we will lose. We will only go to a darker place. But if we surrender and make ourselves available for that change to change us, to work on us and to work through us, we will come out this other side better. And so an example of that is one of the conversations we're having in Irish rugby. And I think anybody in all walks of life can ask himself this question. What opportunities has COVID presented to us that has required us to change our behavior for the better and has given us an insight into behaviors we want to bring forward post-COVID? I think that is a wonderful question to ask yourself as, as someone, a partner in a relationship, an owner, an employee at a business, right? Or someone working in sport. What opportunities has COVID presented such that your behavior by chance or choice, like it or not, has changed, but for the better that you can bring forward? And for that, we can get some gratitude in a very dark place. And I love the way you speak about opportunities in terms of this COVID pandemic that it gives us all. And I love the way you made that relevant whether it's in a home scenario, whether it's in a community scenario, a sporting scenario, or a business scenario. I'm loving the optimism that's shining through the microphone today. Thank you so much. Can you tell us, Nick, a little bit about your memory of our Japanese experience, in particular with the Buddhist monk? And there's, there's rarely a day that, that I don't think or at least feel that memory and that experience. And, and I remember sitting in the room uh, off to the monks, well, it would have been his right, my left. I believe we were sitting next to each other. And one of the questions was, what does mindfulness, meditation, in a Buddhist context, what does that look like? Where are we possibly getting it wrong in the West? And he said something so insightful. It's one of many things I remember, but the thing that stands out. And he says, Buddhism is not about mindfulness. It's not about meditation. Meditation is nothing more than a state of mind and a practice that should and can be brought to every aspect of life. And within that, 
We talk about being attentive. We talk about being mindful, but he said a word. He said a word that just shook me. He said, Buddhism and, and meditation is about emptying yourself, about being utterly empty. Now, at first blush, you hear that. And we think of a word empty. Oh, my pint is gone. It's empty. My money is gone. My bank account is empty. We think of these things as being negative, but oh, it could not be further from the truth in the way he used empty. Emptying yourself is to fully surrender and commit to the world around you, to not retreat back behind your eyes into a world of chaos, confusion, and questioning, but utterly to become in touch with this gift. And that is your life in the environment it takes place in. And that's what he meant by emptying. And every single day, that is what I pursue. And so that is what I took away from that conversation. Nick, in your opinion, how important is meditation and mindfulness to the adaptation that you spoke about at the start? People are throwing around mindfulness and meditation. There's so many books about it, 10% Happier, and you know all the different apps, and it's Headspace and Sam Harris. These are wonderful things. And I want to be very clear. I am not uh, an expert, nor have I committed to the level of mindfulness and meditation to the level I want. I want to be very clear with that on the outset. However, and as we have talked about, it is, it is a place I continue to go back to. Over the last 12 months, I have sat for over an hour. I, I have sat consistently for 15 to 20 minutes. I have sampled the varieties of meditation and mindfulness in the different forms. And what I keep coming back to is mindfulness allows you to empty. It allows you to engage and be at, at one with the world without judgment without critique, whether that's outward or inward. For me, it's, it's ultimately about maximizing your ability to pay attention with the character of compassion and love towards others, towards yourself. And I am not there, and I think many people are not there, but that is what I pursue. So for me, it has become an outlet to train my ability to be present and to be present with the character of mind that I feel is the kind of person I want to be. And so it has become remarkably important. And lately where I find my mindfulness is in my four to seven minutes in six degree Dublin ocean water. Nick, let's shift gears. And I'm going to shift gears from mindfulness into what I've experienced in the corporate world all over the world in the last 10 months in hundreds of sessions with CEOs, with COOs, with leadership teams and leaders at all levels and organizations. And by and large, what we're hearing is people are exhausted. People are absolutely burnt out. People from a physical, mental and emotional point of view are at almost bankruptcy level. You spent your whole life in athletic development and physical well-being, obviously understanding well-being in general. What advice would you have for those CEOs, for those executives who are at burnout stage. And uh, you're, you were one of the, the first individuals to truly teach me that you cannot add emotional energy or equity to someone else if your emotional surplus has been emptied, depleted, or now is on loan. And I think what this situation has shown is with everybody being so emotionally and energy depleted. Uh, I would imagine this is especially the case in 
in relationships, whether that be between partners or, or even siblings or children and their parents. We see all these normal sources of emotional energy that we draw on like batteries from each other. But the reality is even for little children, we're seeing that emotional depletion. And so we have to ask ourselves, how can we put our mask on first? How can we refill our own emotional energy? And I think we've already talked about one such method. The ability to stay present in the moment ensures that you do not waste valuable mental energy in the past or in the future. From there, then, we need to sometimes shock our body into that present moment while adding different energy sources to us. So this is why we probably see Wim Hof's book having record sales and people finding blue space and green space wherever they can, because you are jettisoned into an environment that you must surrender to when you are in the water, when you are in the forest, when you are physically exercising at such an intensity that your mind has no other option but to be in the moment. And so for me, in the process of physically developing myself and mentally developing myself, I can find my emotional reserves. So let's put a bow on that. We do mindfulness to train our capacity to be present in the moment every day, such that we do not inadvertently exhaust valuable emotional resources in rumination. We then get into the water, we get into the forest, such that that attention doesn't take as much effort. The water commands my attention, which means I can release it. The fresh air in the green space commands my attention, which means I can release it. And I start to recoup that valuable energy I require. And then I physically develop my body for not only its same role in commanding my attention such that I can release it, but also physically putting me in an energetic state, in an improved state. So I have additional surplus moving forward. And these mechanisms of environment, of physical activity and mindfulness I think they can come in so many forms, but if people can just sample from those three areas or some variety of, and make sure clean body, clean fuel, water, and food, through those lenses, you will give your mind a reprieve while strengthening it. You will emotionally fill up your own bucket. You'll be there for yourself and by default there for others. You mentioned a book there. I want to speak about a book. I want to speak about a book that I've been really excited and inspired by. It's your book, Nick. And it's your book in terms of the language of coaching. And having spent my whole life coaching, I think this week alone I've done 45 hours of coaching. Can I ask you to talk about what that book presents to leaders or managers or coaches around the world in terms of the language they use during these difficult times? So the language of coaching as a book is very simply, how do we communicate movement? So if you are a sport coach, a strength coach, personal trainer, physio, even mom and dad working with a kid in the backyard, how do we teach people to move better? Recognizing that we use words, we use language to do that. And so let's draw a metaphor then between the topic of the book and what everyday life is about. And so a little micro taste of science here. If you think of yourself on the golf course or playing tennis or any sport, whether it's present or past, we have this thing we know that we call paralysis by analysis. 
overthinking. I'm in my head. And so intuitively, we all know these things. And the great coaches know this. And so great coaches, as you just did, Enda, you said, make it Sesame Street simple. Give me accessible language anybody and everybody can use to apply those strategies you just shared, Nick. Well, that's ultimately what my book is about. What is the language, ready, that gets people out of their head and into the environment, into the outcomes, into existing? And so, for example, if you were playing golf, it would be the difference between trying to think, okay, where does my elbow go, my hips, my knees, my hands, versus imagining the club is a pendulum, and that pendulum is smacking straight through the center of the ball. It's a book about how we systematically simplify our language when we teach, so we simplify what we think while we move. And so let's now bring that to when we are talking to employees or our partner or our kids. One, yes, can brevity be our best friend? Can we say the most with the least? That would be bullet point number one. Number two, can we use positive feed forward language? The three-year-old that keeps knocking over the sippy cup. Stop knocking over the sippy cup. Stop knocking over the sippy cup. By telling them what not to do, I've given them no insight on what to do. So positive feed-forward languages, can I tell you, can I ask you, can I invite you to do something specific? Hey, Madden, when you're done with the sippy cup, leave it on the counter, right? So brevity, feed-forward positive language, what we want versus always what we don't want. And then finally, speaking in outcomes. People don't want to be micromanaged. I don't need to tell you, move your shoulder, elbow, and wrist when you go to grab a cup of water. I just say, please, can you hand me the cup of water? By metaphor, I think employees, I think bosses, we recognize we want to be very clear in what is being asked of us, but we want to be allowed to fulfill the process in our own way to achieve it. And guess what? That same metaphor holds for when we teach movement. The best coaches clarify the outcome of what the movement is meant to achieve. And guess what? Our body is pretty darn good at achieving it. So keep it simple and short. Keep it positive oriented, what we want versus what we don't want. And as best we can communicate in clear outcomes, allowing the autonomy for those to achieve it. To be honest with you, the biggest inspiration about the book for me was all walks of life. It was the leaders in business and in all walks of life and how they're not using language to depict exactly the outcome they want their people to have. So for me, I'm going to ask you if it's okay to give two or three top tips to people in the business world or maybe even in the political world of what your book means to them in communicating effectively in this crisis. So I I think you've said a very important word there. One, can we articulate either A, the outcomes we intend to achieve with a policy, with a program, with a decision, or B, can we clearly articulate the outcome we would like our people to achieve? So clear that it is unavoidable that they can gain inspiration around how they will go about achieving it. 
And when something is clear to us, it takes no effort. And so without getting into specifics, a clear outcome is one that is not just understood by the fact that I understand the words you are using, but one that clearly tells a story and provides a picture in my mind's eye. Every single thing I talk about in the book and, and you having it in your hands, and you can vouch for this, is about putting a visual so clear, so emotionally important to me that I have zero question on what is being asked and then to the degree how I will go about achieving it. Oftentimes where language, I would say all times when language fails is because I did not articulate my position clearly enough in such a way that you understand. And if I can give people one final tip, it is a huge burden to try to get your first guess right. It is egotistical of me to assume that what is clear to me is clear to Enda. And so it goes right on back to your very first question. Can you collaborate? Can you ask questions? Can you invite someone else in to help you craft a message that is uniquely suitable and understood by them? And so that would actually be my number one tip is allow shared meaning by language to truly be shared. And thus, when I give you an outcome I want you to achieve, let's say, Enda, I have you repeat that back to me your own words. And we work together until our meaning is truly visible to both of us. There's an old mentor of mine. He's a global CEO. He's running about a $3 billion business. And he always says to me, Enda, when you're communicating, keep things Sesame Street simple. So I'm going to ask Nick to present that back to me in a Sesame Street simple manner in four bullet points that anybody listening around the world could put that amazing advice into practice in the next 21 days and do relentlessly. What would that be in a Sesame Street simple manner? Number one, when you feel ultimately overwhelmed, open your eyes, look up, be present and take five deep breaths. Go for a walk at the very least. Use your body for something. Get out into the environment, whether it be in that walk, in nature, or ideally in a body of water. Some sampling of that, and to the best of your ability, put good fuel in your body, what you eat and what you drink. And you know what? Give yourself a break. Give yourself a break. You deserve it. And I hope that what I say here resonates with Nick and he will have his last word and his call to action to you, the listeners. And that is stand guard at the door of your own mind. And if you do that every single day, you have a hell of a chance of not only getting through this crisis, but thriving in this crisis. Over to Nick Wilkinman for the last word. If people can do one thing after this, I want them and this is something I'm not good at. I want them to go into the, to, to their bathroom downstairs. I want them to find a mirror. And I want them to look at themselves and allow themselves for a moment to, to, to accept and believe in who they are and allow the world to see who they are. 
and to be unapologetically who they are. And for many people, they're still on a journey to find that out. But that can only begin by looking at yourself, seeing in yourself, and recognizing that you are enough. What a way to close this Rise podcast. Nick Wickham, man, you're always an inspiration. I hope our listeners put this into practice. Go and have a good look in that mirror and absolutely own that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andy. You've been listening to the Rise podcast series, helping you to develop your strength, leadership, and resilience in these remarkable times. Rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Andy McNulty. Thanks for listening.